I am Anthony Fowler. I'm Will Howell. I'm Viola Giuda, and this is not another politics podcast. So, I've been very happy recently. You might have heard that there were elections in Poland. From where I stand, this was a fight between a party that, despite being in power for four years, was presenting themselves as a very anti-establishment. They were really re- relying on the rhetoric of the world is corrupt, there are some forces that are deciding the future of Poland and the true patriots, and you know who they are, are the ones who are supposed to support us and, and fight for the future of Poland. There was this re- anti-European Union rhetoric saying that, you know, they are responsible for, for a lot of what's uh, wrong in Poland. and. The opposition won, so I think the future in Poland is bright, but still, you know, I'm worried because the former ruling party got 36%. And, you know, the fact that a party using this rhetoric can get so much support is very troubling. You've identified a feature of politics that is potentially normatively troubling. It might also have some upsides, but it's a feature of politics that doesn't graft onto the dimension of politics that we're used to talking about, which is liberalism and conservatism, a belief in an active government versus a limited government. That there is this other dimension, possibly, that has to do with where individuals sit vis-a-vis the state and their beliefs that they have about the legitimacy of the state and and the extent to which that they think the state is just a puppet for a, a small handful of private interests or whether or not it's something worth investing in and fighting over and engaging with. That maybe that, that a defining feature of not just Polish politics, but of American politics as well and, and democratic politics is what might be thought of as anti-establishment beliefs. Anthony, for you are going to spend, I suspect, a good deal of our discussion today defending this way of thinking. But before we get to the normative <laughs> implications of, of this, this brand of crazy, we should think about whether or not this dimension actually exists. And do we have any, any evidence that it actually plays a, a prominent feature in our politics? Uh, I, spoke with, uh, I spoke with Joe Zinski. And he has written a paper with a number of co-authors, which is really interesting, on exactly this 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 point: this the fact that there's this pro versus anti-establishment dimension in politics that, in many ways, we can think of as distinct from the traditional left-right ideological dimension that we spend most of our time talking about. And you could argue that that it's becoming more important over time; that it's that it's really become salient and important uh, in American politics and elsewhere. Um, and it might help to explain a lot of interesting phenomena that are otherwise hard to explain, including you know the the, the relative popularity of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, or maybe even the the revolt against Kevin McCarthy in the House. Um, a lot of these conflicts are not about traditional left-right ideology; they're about this pro versus anti-establishment thinking. Um, and so and so I had a really interesting conversation with Joe about that. So tell me a little bit about the, the just the, the origins and motivations for this paper. It's called American Politics in Two Dimensions, Partisan and Ideological Identities versus Anti-Establishment Orientations. What are anti-establishment orientations and why is that something that you, you, you wanted to study? So given what Americans have, have seen in the last decade in our politics, I mean, it clearly, for most people, it seems like something's clearly different. And usually when we mean different, we usually mean not very good <laughs> and that things have sort of devolved and there is a tendency right now to say, well, it must be polarization. But 
you know, around 15 years ago, when I started studying conspiracy theories, I sort of expected to find that conspiracy theories are going to be very much potentially on the right rather than the left. And what I found instead was that they were sort of dead even between the two sides. I mean, obviously, it depends which conspiracy theory you're talking about. But in terms of just the general tendency to think that there's powerful forces controlling things and actively working against us, I mean, that seems to be spread throughout the electorate, regardless of what side people are on. And that had gotten me thinking about sort of two-dimensional politics. That one, yeah, this left-right thing clearly exists. There are liberals and conservatives and Republicans and Democrats. But there are a lot of opinions out there that don't really fit neatly as left or right. And there's a lot of behaviors that, that don't necessarily spring from left or right identities or, or values or beliefs. So myself and some of my co-authors, um, particularly Adam Enders, um, we've been thinking more broadly in terms of, is there a second dimension to mass public opinion such that many of the things that we think are far left or far right are really just a little bit of left or a little bit of right with something that cuts across that left-right dimension. You know, what is anti-establishment sentiment? We define it as a combination of populism. Like, we, the good people, are being betrayed by the corrupt elite. We have the one true voice of the nation, but the, the elites are not representing it correctly. Manichaeanism, you know, politics is a battle between good and evil. And conspiracy thinking, which is... There's powerful groups out there who are actively working against us. And what we find is those three things sort of overlap with each other very well. And they are largely orthogonal to left-right identities and considerations. Yeah, there's people from far left to far right, but they're also higher or lower depending on how much they dislike the establishment as a whole or like the establishment as a whole, regardless of what particular party we're talking about. So let's let's talk through some of the measurement here. So you 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 have some kind of pretty traditional ways of measuring left right ideology. You ask people about their partisan identities, their ideological affiliations, how do they feel about the parties, things like that. But then you also ask these anti-establishment items. I'll mention a few of them. You can yeah tell me. I don't know if you have if you have favorite ones, but you ask things like the people who really run the country in scare quotes are are not known to the voters. So you have, you know, questions along those lines. Much of our lives are being controlled by plots hatched in secret places. Um, official government accounts of events can't be trusted. And you essentially, you, you put all of those items together in a factor analysis. You're essentially seeing how correlated they are with one another. And, and it seems like those anti-establishment, like you said before, those anti-establishment items are not very correlated with traditional left-right ideology questions. And they kind of emerge as their own independent, independent factor. I mean, then you, and then you do a lot with those scores. Um, do you want to so tell me tell me a little bit more about what you, what you what you do with those scores? Once you have a kind of left right score and a pro or anti establishment score for each respondent, what what kinds of things does that help you help you do? So once we know how anti establishment people are, uh, we could then go ahead and take that score and uh, compare it to lots of other things. So things like their personality traits, their online behaviors. Um, what sort of social media they use, uh, do they vote or not, do they register to vote, do they support violence. And what we find is that the people who are very anti-establishment are, are very different people than the people who we would call more pro-establishment. 
such that the people who really don't like the political establishment have higher need for chaos. They um, have higher levels of dark triad personality traits like uh, psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. They are more likely to want to spread false information online that they know is false. And they're likely to say yes to questions like, if violence is called for in our politics, I'm ready. And I, I believe that violence is a good way to solve our political problems. So those sorts of items we've been running for the last few years and comparing it to this, this measure of, of anti-establishment sentiment. And it's not just that people don't like the establishment. It's like they're carrying a lot of baggage, other what we might call non-normative traits and non-normative behavioral tendencies with them as they enter politics. I think the point that the paper tries to make isn't just that this sentiment exists. It's that it can be activated by partisan politicians for partisan ends, even though it's a somewhat nonpartisan sentiment, right? So you can imagine somebody like Trump comes out and says, hey, I'm going to fight the deep state and everything's corrupt and all the elections are rigged. So essentially putting out a lot of cues that they are themselves against the establishment. And what they're going to wind up doing is not just pulling in people who share their party label, like Republicans were going to support Trump because he was the Republican nominee, but he's what he's doing with all of this anti-establishment rhetoric is appealing to voters who are more animated by their anti-establishment views more than they are by their uh, perhaps partisan or ideological views. Do you think that's that's illustrated with the with the primaries that are you know getting going right now? I mean, it almost seems to me like uh, this anti-establishment dimension is the most important thing that distinguishes the candidates within their partisan primaries. I don't know if you've seen some of the Republican debates. It's hard to find clear policy, like kind of traditional left-right disagreement between the candidates. But it seems like there's a very big difference between say. Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy on this kind of pro versus anti-establishment dimension. And maybe you could say the same thing about Biden and RFK Jr. on, on the Democratic side. It seems like this has kind of emerged as perhaps the most important thing that distinguishes people within within parties. Is that is that fair? Or? Yeah. And I think it's even more than that, because I think there's a lot of people aren't real ideologues. Right. And political scientists have known this for a long time. Right? Not everybody has a clear-cut liberal or conservative ideology. It's not entirely clear that people have issue positions that make sense together. And this is a mistake that I think political scientists have made for decades now, is that even knowing this, we've almost always focused on the effect of ideology and partisanship. right? And we've assumed that people have opted into the establishment, and then the only choice that they're making is which side are you going to be on and how much. Right where there's an initial choice before that, which is how much do I support the establishment at all? And then what side am I going to be on? And, and those are sort of two separate questions. And we often take the first one for granted. And, and I don't think we should because there's a lot of pe people out there who are like, I just want to burn the system down or I think it's entirely corrupt. doesn't matter who's running it. So if you're a partisan, I mean, this exists within your party within the voters of your party. So it's there for you to appeal to, should you want to do that. But then you've got this group of people who are sort of floating around somewhere in the middle who don't really have clear, crisp uh, ideologies, where this might be more animating for them than just talking about traditional liberal or conservative 
issues. I'm asking you to speculate a little bit because the data in your paper is from 2019 and 2020, if I remember correctly. But do you think this kind of this sentiment has been around for a long time in American politics and Trump just maybe sees that Uh, maybe 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 seeing something that other Republican candidates hadn't seen? Or do you think this is a relatively new thing that this that this this attitude has emerged as especially important among the electorate in recent years? I think it's only important because elites are trying to activate it. I think it's always there, right? Now, again, that's speculation because we weren't polling on this prior to a few years ago. But having polled on it since, uh, we could tell you that it's fairly stable over time. But with that said, I mean, it could become, you know, the next left-right dimension. If if politicians just simply said, we're not going to be talking about some of these issues anymore that we have been talking about, but we're going to we're going to become all about either hating the establishment or liking it. And this could wind up being what what determines how people vote in the future. And we saw it we we saw a little bit of this in 2016 where Donald Trump was pushing lots and lots of conspiracy theories and Hillary Clinton was saying um, he should be disqualified because he's pushing too many conspiracy theories. The race in that sense wasn't just about left-right issues. It was also about being pro and anti-establishment. Should elites stop using this rhetoric, what would wind up happening is that these sorts of views would become far less prominent in our politics and people might not be making decisions based upon them the way they may be now. And just to give one example of it, because I do have a little bit of data on this. I mean, when I first polled on with some of these items in 2012, the people who were scoring highly on sentiments like the people who run the government are not really known to the voters or small groups of people working against us are controlling wars and, and the economy. People high on those uh, or, or were far less likely to, to register to vote or to vote compared to people who didn't agree with those sorts of ideas. That's changed over time, right? So if you go back to 2012, I mean, neither Romney nor Obama, two fairly establishment candidates, were really pressing on the government's all corrupt and we need to blow it up or something, right? So they weren't making appeals to that sort of sentiment. So the people who were largely driven by it were sort of staying home because this isn't their race and it's just more establishment people that they don't like. Whereas once 2016 comes around and you've got the Pied Piper for these people playing their tune, now now things have changed. Now these folks have a reason to vote, right? Because someone's finally telling it like it is for them. You, you mentioned this you know, possibility of a major realignment where this anti-establishment dimension becomes a key, you know, maybe a, a key part, if not the main part of the disagreement between the parties. But does it seem to you like that's already happening to some extent that we saw, we're seeing that education is becoming increasingly associated with voting for the Democratic Party and income is becoming less associated with vote choice and the Democratic Party is becoming more, you know, maybe even less economically progressive and more the kind of elite establishment educated party? Yeah, I mean, we, we are starting to see some things in the Republican Party that we might not have expected 10 or 20 years ago. Now we've got a lot of Republicans who don't like business. Um, you wouldn't have expected that some time ago because business for a long time was very much part of the Republican coalition. They were the pro-business party. And now it's, we don't trust those woke corporations. Like the Republican Party is now going to be the party to protect us from sex traffickers and satanic baby eaters. 
I mean, that doesn't spring from anything, you know, uh, Bill Buckley was talking about 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, this is a completely different thing. And it may very well that some of these issues were always there, floating beneath the surface, that people were caring about these sorts of things. But political scientists weren't polling on it. We weren't spending a lot of we weren't spending a lot of time thinking about it, right? If I was to be asked to explain why we missed it for so long, it's because one, our elites weren't weren't trafficking in it the way they are now, and two, because we have a blind spot. I mean, we are a bunch of pro-establishment folks who are ingrained in the establishment. We are the one percent of education, right? And we, and as political scientists, we're pretty much embedded in the system. And most of us have, have fairly fairly refined partisan and ideological identities. So we don't ask ourselves this question, do I trust the government at all? <laughs> you know, do, do I think the whole thing is corrupt? So those things don't cross our mind. And we often forget this question where you've just got that guy on the street who's like, I don't know who these Congress people are. I don't know who these people are that work in the Department of Education. I don't know what any of this stuff is. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I don't trust it. One, I got one last thing I kind of want to push you on. You've, uh, you've used normative language a few times in this conversation, and, and there's a little bit of normative language in the paper as well. There's a little bit of, you know, a, a wish that this wasn't happening and, and, uh, and a little, you know, and, and you just, as you said yourself, you know, most college professors are themselves kind of, we are part of the elite establishment. And so is there not some empathy that you have for these anti-establishment people? I mean, is, isn't it the case that uh, governments do lie to us and, you know, and often college professors aren't the most trustworthy and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and ExxonMobil and, and Pfizer and so forth, you know, all of these kind of, and then the CDC and the CIA and so forth, they, they don't have great track records. And I would, I, I wish it were the case that our institutions were more trustworthy than they are. But given that maybe they're not so trustworthy, is it not understandable that people feel this way? And, uh, and is it, I don't know, is, is it right to look down on people who have these anti-establishment views? Well, I don't do that because I probably share a lot of them myself, but perhaps for a different reason. I, I guess the first thing I would say is, let's say you're an African-American in the U.S. and you don't like the establishment because you've seen what it's done in the past. It makes perfect sense, right? There's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And we find, you know, it, when we measure these things in lots of different ways, whether it's conspiracism or populism, that groups who have been treated poorly or neglected by the establishment generally like the establishment less, Right. I guess the distinction I would make there is that you've got people who don't like the establishment oftentimes because of underlying personality traits they have. They have these sort of non-normative or ornery personality traits. They want to blow things up. And perhaps they've been treated quite well by the establishment, but still want to blow it up. So it doesn't shock me that people are going to have this to some extent. And to me, it's not a binary, like you're pro or anti. I mean, I there's a lot of gradations in between, right? But a lot of it's going to come down to who, who you are and, and maybe what the reasons are for holding that. To give a, a, another example, part of anti-establishment thinking is conspiracy thinking, right? Where people on the high end of that scale are very likely to see conspiracy theories everywhere and people on the low end of that scale are very unlikely to believe conspiracy theories when presented with them. Both ends of that scale have problems, right? So the people on the high end of it have sort of a, a, a false positive problem where they're seeing conspiracies everywhere where they probably don't exist. But the people on the bottom end of that are not that great either. 
Because they don't see conspiracies that do exist, right? So in, in either case, um, the people are being driven by biases and getting a lot of things wrong. So being probably somewhere in the middle of that scale is, is completely fine and normative. Oftentimes when I think about anti-establishment, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's a separate dimension of opinion. It becomes a little bit non-normative depending on what's attached with it and, and what its antecedents are, right? So if you get a person who's super high in narcissism and psychopathy and says they want to blow things up and they want to destroy the system and they like spreading false information online... At that point, it is becoming a normative problem, right? But if you just have somebody who's a member of a minority group and says, my group has been treated terribly throughout you know, the last couple hundred years, so I don't, trust, I don't trust the establishment, that seems completely fine, right? This has been really interesting and fun. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I think that's it. <laughs> Thank you for having okay. me on. I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. This is great. This is fun. And I think this is going to make for a fun discussion, too, with, uh, with, uh, with my co-hosts. Yeah, one thing I think that's important to note here is that they estimate this anti-establishment dimension with these survey questions. And what they find, kind of a normal distribution on that dimension. So they're not finding a huge mass of people that are at the far extremes that are, you know, so you might think of the far extreme on this anti-establishment dimension as people who they would like to just burn down Washington, D.C. and all the universities and so forth, you know, and uh, just start over from scratch and don't not trust anything and so on. And that's very few people at the far end of that. Most people are somewhere in the middle. There are, of course, you know, a small number of people at the far opposite end of that who just, you know, like, I just believe whatever the establishment tells me. Like, I, I would pay a million dollars to go to the World Economic Forum and just do exactly what they tell me to do, you know. Um, so there's, there's I want to meet those people. There's that extreme. Mm-hmm. And then, but most people are somewhere in the middle. Most people are kind of moderate in this dimension. Not unlike the left-right ideological dimension. Most people are somewhere in the middle. They're, they're sitting there thinking, well, yeah, I don't trust everything that I hear from from college professors and bureaucrats and military generals and so forth. And I am skeptical of our institutions, but I also don't just, I don't believe everything that Donald Trump says either. And, and I don't think we should tear down all of our institutions, but, but maybe we should take a different approach on some of these questions. But were you not, were you not surprised by this distribution? So when you phrase it the way you phrase it, it's not surprising. Of course, most of us trust institutions, but not blindly. But when you look at the questions that they ask, uh, they are not like this, like, you know, do you think sometimes scientists lie or do you think sometimes scientists make mistakes? Those questions, at least the ones that I've seen in the paper, are, I think, you know, I would score very low on that scale. No, those questions should we, are... Should we, do, should do we run think? through? Should we find out your, your anti-establishment I, score? I, I, I think we should have done this, or maybe we'll do this after we finish... Uh, this episode and we have ended. <laughs> I, I'm actually very curious, but I think based on the questions I've seen, I would score very low. So I was surprised to me, you know, being in the center of distribution is not being this kind of person that you describe based on these questions. To me, it's actually being a slightly paranoid person. So I don't know. What was your reaction, Will, when you saw this distribution? Yeah, I agree. Anthony, you're characterizing it in a way that is really quite attractive, but that's not really what the paper's doing. The paper's coming in and saying where they stand correlates highly with conspiracy theories and all kinds of psychological attributes that none of us would aspire to have. And so to say I'm 
I'm moderately uh, what uh, narcissistic, <laughs> right? Is is yeah, I, I'm not. I don't want that. I don't want anything to do with any of that. Sort of in terms of my own aspirations. But we can understand, I mean, as you're saying, Anthony, we can understand is like, well, where do you sit vis-a-vis these institutions, right? It's like, do I look skeptically upon them or do I just sort of drink the Kool-Aid? Um, a bit of both. That means it puts me somewhere in the middle. But maybe we should read out what some of these questions are. Sure, sure. And these are these are kind of five point scales too. So they're so they're they're not just binary yes or no's. They're like, you know, here's a statement. Do you, you know, strongly agree? Do you strongly disagree? Are you somewhere in the middle? And and it could be that most people are somewhere in the middle on some of them. So so I don't know. So how I mean, how would you answer a question like that? Even though we live in a democracy, few people will always run things anyway. Do you strongly disagree with that statement? No, there's something to it, right? You probably say, I don't know, maybe you mildly disagree, you somewhat agree, somewhat disagree, you know, right? I mean, disagree. (laughs) Strongly disagree. I don't know. I mean, obviously, these are, yeah, these are somewhat subjective, but I don't don't know. I would disagree to that, but I agree with Fiola on that. I mean, I think this is one, what that's tapping is this view that there are a handful of interests that are orchestrating everything. And to, in, in my own view, is that we have our institutions everywhere, elections everywhere, and our kitchen is flooded with cooks. And that's an essential challenge of our of our politics. So I think you're actually, you're already playing this game when you answer that question. You're thinking, yeah. oh, what's the survey researcher trying to pick up on? Oh, they're trying to pick up on whether I'm a conspiracy theorist. I want to make sure I don't answer this question in a way that makes me look like a conspiracy theorist. Some people might actually be going the opposite way. They might be saying, maybe I don't exactly agree with that statement, but I definitely don't trust the people that run things in Washington. And, and therefore, I'm going to answer this question in a more, you know, in a, in a, you know, give a higher answer to that question because I want to express my, dis, you know, unhappiness with the establishment. I mean, maybe it's actually informative. The way you expressively answer these questions could actually be informative for like getting a sense of how you actually feel. But even the way you you answered that question suggested that you weren't really answering the question directly. You were kind of thinking about. No, I was. It was about a few interests, right? A few interests a few are people. running the show. It says a few people. Few people. A few people. Anyway. That's the question. Yeah. And they will do it regardless. And I just like on the merits, I think that's wrong. I think I'm with Anthony here, though, because, you know, as soon as I heard your exchange, this was the thing that came to my mind. Like, when I read this question, I do attach some interpretation. And I think where we come from, it's natural for us to attach the interpretation of like, oh, you know, what they are really saying is that there's some conspiracy theory. And obviously, there's none. But, you know, if you take the question literally, yes, it is true that a few people end up running the country, those who are the elected officials. And do you think and do you think those few people are they are they really just acting in the best interest of the public and doing what they think the public wants because we live in a democracy? Or do they sometimes act out of self-interest? Do they sometimes do exactly That's what's not best the question. That's or, not the question. No, but, I think uh, no, I, but I, I think mean, you know Yes, but I think a lot of people might read it that way and say, Well, I don't you know, maybe they don't strongly agree with that question, but maybe they somewhat agree with that to say, yeah, there's a small number of people that effectively run things, even though on paper we're a democracy. I stand by my answer. Okay. I think right, let me ask you, yeah, let me ask you another Let's go to another one. Let's go okay. to another one. Okay. Official, official government accounts of events cannot be trusted. Okay, I would say strongly disagree. And I know what you're going to say. Of course, we don't trust (laughs) blindly. And of course, we have a lot of examples where the governments lied to us. But yeah, I think... Well, there you go, that already. (laughs) The fact that you just acknowledged the government's lied to us a bunch of times before, then how could you say strongly disagree to that question? You must say at least 
at least somewhat, you know, like at least somewhat disagree, if not somewhat agree, right? I mean, you just said the government lies to us all the time. Because the statement is that they can't be trusted. And I think on average uh, that they still can. And when you tell me that they can't, I, I just immediately think about, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm interpreting the question. I'm adding interpretation. Yeah. You're like, I don't want to be one of those people that doesn't trust the government. You're like, well, this is the team that I'm on. I'm on the pro-establishment team because you're, you know, you're a tenure professor at the University of Chicago and you're part of the establishment. I am. I am. <laughs> oh, it comes in waves. No, but, but... Which, which, brings me, which brings me to another question. Uh, people who have studied for a long time and have many diplomas do not really know what makes the world go round. Strongly disagree. How could you strongly disagree with that question? You every day interact with people with lots of diplomas who have no idea what they're talking about. How could you possibly say strongly disagree to that okay, question? Okay, so it's, it's <laughs> it's it's pretty obvious. We attach some interpretation to this question and then we answer them according to this interpretation. But then the question is, are we different than the rest of the respondents or are they also attaching some interpretation? And if they are and they are falling differently, they are answering these questions differently than what does that mean? You know, do, do we does this mean that they do have this conspiratorial tendency already? I don't know. So we are back to why, the... Why are you calling it conspiratorial tendency? You're already putting some pejorative label on it. But that's all that's what, like, all yes. what the paper does. said in the survey <laughs> question is... That's what the paper does. And, and Joe and I talked about that. And he, he backed off of that in the interview. He sort of said, well, actually, it kind of would make sense. It'd be crazy to be really high on this dimension. It would make sense to be somewhere in the middle. But the paper does, the paper does have this normative language, which is what you guys are adding to it. But why would you add a pejorative language to it? All that person's saying is, is yeah, of course, I think people who, just, people who have lots of fancy degrees don't necessarily know what they're talking about all the time. That's a totally reasonable thing to say. That's not conspiratorial. Or if it is, then then I'm, I guess I'm conspiratorial, but who cares? Like what, like what, yes. what, what values? <laughs> yeah. No, what it's saying is, that's not, right, the papers, the papers not saying by virtue of answering this question this way, by definition, you are conspiratorial. What the paper's doing is it's saying those who are more likely to answer the question this way are more likely by reference to a separate measure to endorse conspiracies and are more likely to exhibit a bunch of troubling psychological traits. And, and so it's in that way that there's this normative overlay to the argument. And so it's just about predicting where people end up. And what do you know, the people at the high end who are answering the way that you are providing, Anthony, this sort of spin that says, look, it's a straightforward, but you could be perfectly reasonable. In fact, you, you can be right thinking to answer the questions these ways. And they say, well, that could be true. But disproportionately, what we observe are people with a bunch of negative uh, psychological traits and conspiratorial thinking. So there it is. We should talk about that, too, because I'm sure I could find a bunch of positive traits of these people. I could, I'm sure as between the anti-establishment and the pro, I could have asked a different set of questions. I could have said, let's find a bunch of cases where, in fact, the government was lying to us. And we now know ex post that the government was lying to us. And the anti-establishment people were right. And the pro-establishment people were wrong. So I don't know. So it's not it's not obvious to me which one is right. Probably the right answer is you're you're probably kind of a crazy person if you're too far on either extreme of the scale because it would be crazy to answer strongly agree or strongly disagree to every single one of these questions. But I, I, I that could be a cherry picking kind of thing too. Like I ask, I mean, I ask a question about a crazy conspiracy theory. You know, we've talked a lot about partisan cheerleading in surveys. How much of that is even sincere? Do I say I believe in the conspiracy theory because it's kind of a fun thing, or do I really believe it? There's that open question. But even then, 
these are questions that are all intended to make the anti-establishment people look like the, the, the idiot, crazy people. But I could have asked us another set of questions that would have made the pro-establishment people look, look wrong-headed. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discussed on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Capital Isn't. Capitalism uses the latest economic thinking to zero in on the ways that capitalism is, and more often than not isn't, working today. From the debate over how to distribute a vaccine to the morality of a wealth tax, capitalism clearly explains how capitalism can go wrong and what we can do about it. Listen to Capitalism, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Okay, so I want to I want to take stock of where we're at. Are we all agreeing that the paper successfully establishes the existence of a second dimension? There's the dimensionality concern, and then there's this what we're talking about now, which is what is the meaning of what are the implications of residing in one place or another on that second dimension? But do we want to say yes, this is a feature of a, 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 a predominant feature of our politics, and take the finding from the paper which says that it is essentially orthogonal to left-right politics that we're accustomed to talking about? So I have a question exactly about that. So so to what extent is this an important dimension? Does the paper do a good job telling us this is very important other than this exists? And Anthony, you, you earlier uh, alluded to the fact that we seem to be seeing more and more of this kind of thinking and this kind of political, be- political behavior related to this kind of thinking. Do we also have evidence of that or is this only our perception? Well, what we don't know, actually, how much this has changed over time, and Joe and I talked about that a little bit in the interview, what we do know is that politicians have come along and, you know, realigned their positions in a way that captures some of those anti-establishment people. This anti-establishment dimension, even after controlling for kind of left-right ideology, is positively correlated with support for Donald Trump, but it's also positively correlated with support for Bernie Sanders. And of course, it's negatively correlated with support for Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and so forth. So the thing that could be new is that politicians are coming along and speaking to those anti-establishment people in a way that previous politicians didn't. That, that's, that's possible. It could also be the anti-establishment sentiments are kind of going up over time that we've seen too many blunders in recent years of the establishment. And so more and more people are kind of leaning in this anti-establishment way. But I think I think the biggest thing is that People like Donald Trump realized that this was this was something that was going on. This was an opportunity for him. And he said the you know, Hillary Clinton isn't making any appeals to those people at all. I'm going to I'm going to go after those people. Yeah. So the front end of the paper says that, you know, through elite cues and elite position taking, they can not just tap into, but reorient these dimensions. They can sort of shift them. It holds out that possibility, but there's nothing in the paper that establishes or documents what elites are actually doing, right? So we don't, in the same way, we don't we don't know what's happening over time, at least in terms of the evidence on offer in this paper. We also don't know how these views are interacting with elite position taking. All we see is, I mean, it's a standard survey where you ask a bunch of questions and say, does it collapse onto a single dimension or multiple dimensions? And then what are the correlates of that second dimension? Well, we know what Trump and Sanders were saying on the campaign trail, and we know what Clinton and Biden were saying on the campaign trail. And so, I mean, we can we can do that mapping a little bit ourselves. And it seems like this matters. It seems like it's like anti- part of Donald Trump's success is this yeah. anti. So if you ask, like, does this matter at all? 
I think I think probably Donald Trump wouldn't have been elected if there weren't a bunch of anti-establishment people out there. So yes, I think it probably does matter. It it probably does, but it also is true that you know running for Congress by running against it is a trope that's existed for decades, and the deep dissatisfaction with and critiques of and uh, of government are not new to our politics in the last decade. I mean, I think th- there certainly is rising levels of distrust and. Uh, I don't know. I, to my mind, at least, what the papers, all the papers doing is saying the second dimension exists. And what do you know it correlates with a bunch of negative stuff? It may be that it correlates with some positive stuff as well, but we don't have any evidence of that either in here because they just have these measures of, you know, conspiracy thinking and these negative psychological attributes. I would guess, based on this paper and also, again, on my own experience, that these anti-establishment sentiments are out there. It's just a human thing. I think this thinking in terms of good and evil and us against them and this desire to always have someone to blame for or our misfortunes, I think this is very human. And, and I think what's happening is that from time to time, politicians start tapping into that because, you know, it's, it's a competition and you're fighting for votes, and they succeed because those sentiments are out there. But I think historically this kind of appears uh, and badly for everyone. And then we learn, and then I think the establishment <laughs> uh, learns that, that those appeals are not really working out in the long run, and they somehow enter this equilibrium where they try not to appeal to those sentiments. Talking about I- the ideological dimension and ide- ideological disagreements and so on, it seems to me that from time to time we forget how how bad it can end if we appeal to those sentiments, but it's very tempting. And we go through those cycles and let's see where we end this time. <laughs> I want to, I want to push back on that a little bit. I mean, of course, I mean, lots of things can end badly. It's, it's where I'm talking about politics. I think pro-establishmentarianism can end really badly too. We wouldn't have had the Iraq war if it wasn't for kind of pro-establishment thinking for a bunch of people saying, that's well, not true. That's not true. That's an exaggeration. What do, you mean? That's a- what do you mean? We had this whole justification for the war and like, well, you know, they've got weapons of mass destruction. And even though the evidence was never very good, but you know, we just don't like those people in Iraq anyway. And so we'll just kind of go along with it and trust it. And almost every member of Congress voted for it, even though the evidence for weapons of mass destruction was never that good. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe had there been some some brave anti-establishment people in Washington pushing back against that, maybe we don't have the war, and maybe maybe a million lives of Iraqis would have been saved. I mean, I don't know. Things end badly either way. Yeah, I think it it much rides on what you think the intention is behind making anti-establishment appeals. So, in the service of trying to provide a kind of a, a clear distinction here. Let me take the extremes. On one hand, what you might say is that all the institutions are corrupt through and through, right? It's nothing but lies and self-interest everywhere. And these institutions have it out for you. To my mind, that is the kind of thing that populists generally, it's what Trump is tapping into. It's that believe just, well, the alternative is just believe in me because I'm going to deliver for you, right? Only I can solve this problem. On the other hand, you might offer a deep critique of an existing political order. And I think this is the kind of thing that the Bernie Sanders of the world are doing. You say these institutions distort our national interests and that they need to be upended and reconstituted. But that's not in the service at every turn of marginalizing experts or sowing disaffection and anger or 
encouraging people to sort of give up on the small d democratic project and instead bow before uh, King Sanders. It, it is in the service of something very different from what's going on on the populist side. And so to my mind, like Viola, when you were saying you play with populism, it can take you to a, a troubled place. I'm inclined to, I, I agree with that. But the alternative isn't to be sort of gullible and just take as given what, what political elites say. You can offer a critique, you can even offer a deep, profound critique of the sort. And I'm not saying that, that Bernie Sanders' critique is the right one. But I don't think it's one and the same, even if even if you see them loading up both on high on this one dimension, this anti-establishment dimension as, they, as they've measured it. One of the findings here, too, is when you look at the correlates of support for this these anti-establishment, what they're calling these anti-establishment views, they have to do with race. You see Hispanics and African-Americans more likely to score high on this. It is... You know, the, Ber the Bernie bros, the Trumpsters, and African-Americans and Hispanics all clustering at this high end of this distribution. And I don't think we're accustomed to thinking about them keeping company with one another. I know what the progressive talking point is on this, <laughs> because we had the same conversation with like uh, COVID vaccinations. White people who are anti-establishment, they're terrible, racist, bigoted horrible people that are undermining democracy, but non-white people who are anti-establishment, that's totally understandable because they've experienced oppression and injustice and so forth. And so, so they're, they're actually right to hold those anti-establishment views. I mean, that's a sensible set of views, but, and, 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 and it could be that one or both of those parts is right, but that is, you know, but I think, I think a more, I think a more neutral interpretation is that, yeah, this isn't actually, this isn't such an obvious racial thing. Like, of course there are white, black, Latino, et cetera, lots of people who are both high and low on this establishment scale. And it, it's, it's correlated with lots of things. It's correlated with race. It's correlated with education. It's correlated with socioeconomic status. And maybe it makes sense that people who have kind of had a bad go of things are a little bit more likely to be anti-establishment. So we wouldn't be surprised that Black and Latino people are slightly overrepresented in this anti-establishment dimension. Yeah, so, so I think here I'm with you, Anthony. So, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Why, why do people hold these views? And I think there might be two reasons. One is just this natural inclination. You just have this personality. And another one might be just your experiences. And obviously, if you're Black, you might hold these views because, you know, especially when it comes to vaccines. If you are an immigrant, you might hold these views because you also come from countries where you know, democracy wasn't working super well. You know, I'm sure the authors try to have a representative sample, but we know that it's not very easy to tap into certain communities. So my guess is if you went to some rural areas, so to some underprivileged white areas, the Appalachian, my, my guess is you would get also a cluster of people uh, there for exactly the same right reasons that, that they feel left out. They feel like the government doesn't care about them. You know, is this crazy or is this justified? And it's both. And I think this goes back to your research, Will, you know, you have this sort of theory that populism is more likely to arise when we have governments that don't work. And I think this is all related. When we have governments that don't work for us, we are more likely to then search for explanations for why this is the case. And and this explanation is, well, you know, there's some conspiracy going on there. There's some people who are just pulling the strings. Yeah, but it's, it's that research that I have in mind when trying to hold on to this distinction that you can, again, offer and one should offer a deep critique 
of political institutions and their performance. You shouldn't just, credulity is not an attractive feature in our politics, that we should think skeptically about what's said. And plenty of people have good reason to look up at our political institutions and say, not good enough. But the next move to my mind, the, the move that keeps our democracy intact is one that allows for us to say, okay, we got to roll up our sleeves and get to work. We need to fix these institutions. We need to recognize where they failed and be as clear as we can about what constitutes a corrective. The worry that I have about populism, which is, I think, a feature, it's a constituent feature of this dimension that they're lifting up, is that it doesn't leave any space for those conversations. It's about sowing of the outrage and the disaffection all the way through. And, and all you're left with is a sentiment that says, burn it all down and look to a savior. You you are well. You are putting a lot of words in the mouths of these supposed anti-establishment people. I mean, we we already said that the people on the far end. It's not a lot of people on the far end, but we don't know if the people on the far end. I mean, maybe you know we know that they they like Trump more than they like other Republicans. We don't know that they just put their faith in Trump. They might also not trust Trump very much either, for all we know. If I had to guess, they probably don't, because their inclination is to be kind of not, you know, not trusting of political leaders. They probably, they probably like that tr Trump just doesn't automatically do whatever the establishment tells him to do. But I, I doubt that they just think, whatever Trump says, I just believe that. That's what he's asking you to do, though. That's what Trump's appeal is. Don't believe anybody but me. And so I'm not saying we don't have any evidence that they are are just sort of taking it all in, but that you see those appeals being made by a populist and you see widespread support on this dimension by folk, that element of anti-establishment, I would worry about. There's this other element that I think is terrific that we should hold on to, which is look skeptically upon these institutions. Like that's why, I mean, that's, so when we say it's it's complex, there's lots, lots of dimensions to the second dimension, uh, that's right. There are pieces of it that I really worry about. That, that makes me think back to the beginning of our conversation and, and sort of the tone we struck. And also, I think the tone we struck was similar to the tone the paper struck, which is there's a little bit of, well, there's a problem. People have these anti-establishment views, and that might be a problem. But I'm coming more around to the view that, no, I mean, those are just views that we hold as human beings, and there's nothing wrong about them, and sometimes we are justified uh, holding them. The problem comes from the politicians. Do they do they try to tap into that in this you know populist way, uh, or do they not? Do they try to tap into this in in this sort of more reasonable way where they say, okay, you know, maybe Fauci lied to you twice. Let's think about why he did that and what can we do moving forward to improve the institutions and make sure that we don't have this kind of situation. So when we are talking about hey, something is happening in the United States and suddenly we have more of this sort of extreme uh, position taking and and hatred towards the other group and so on, maybe it's not because people are becoming more and more anti-establishment on this scale. It's just because of the behavior of politicians. I'm inclined to believe that. And I would like to get some pra praise from Anthony for defending the rational voter. <laughs> yes, I'm going to give both of you praise because I think what you've revealed, even though you don't want to, is that you're kind of moderate on this anti-establishment dimension yourselves. You sort of see, <laughs> see the arguments on both sides. Uh, you yourselves are saying, yeah, we, there are a bunch of situations where we probably need to reform our institutions. We don't want to blow them up and start over from scratch, but there are lots of things that don't work as well as they should. And for a lot of the people on this scale who are kind of low, moderate to even high on the, they might, they might agree with you on that. They might be thinking the same thing as you. Now, it might be the case that they voted for Donald Trump, 
not because they love Donald Trump, but because Donald Trump was the one person who was coming along and not towing the, you know, towing the establishment line. And he was, he was saying, I'm going to do something different. I'm not just going to do whatever the, the NSA tells me to do or whatever it is. They might prefer some alternative that was even more reasonable and more sensible, but they, they preferred Trump over Clinton for, for those kinds of reasons because they thought, well, he, at least he's going he's gonna to shake things up and try to improve things. Anyway, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, this isn't a defense of Donald Trump, but I think the people who are coming out as high anti-establishment on the scale might not disagree with you as much as you think. And again, I think, I think what we're struggling to do is to make sense of what this dimension that this paper productively introduces us to and says is a, a defining feature of our politics, what meaning we want to ascribe to it. And some meanings, I think, are healthy for our politics and other meanings I'm really troubled by. The paper really emphasizes the pathologies of this dimension. I mean, that's really what it's about. It's talking about the conspiracy theory and these negative psychological attributes. And if what you think is, damn it, there is a problem here, folks, we agree. But the the, the work at hand is not to set fires everywhere. The work at hand is to try to figure out how to redesign our institutions. Then this second dimension, as characterized by this paper, is not helpful. But but, and this is, I think, what you're holding up, Anthony, which is that eh, there other, it may correlate with other more attractive a- a- attributes. And what do you know, with a little reflection, we here who don't think of ourselves as anti-democratic actually score probably in the moderate level um, on, on these measures. So I guess, I guess that's my bottom line. <laughs> yeah, my bottom line is that we should worry perhaps less about those attitudes that people hold, but more about what politicians are doing about them. And I really hope it's a phase we learn and then for a while we bury those appeals to those anti-establishment uh, beliefs uh, deeply. All right. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think this is an interesting paper. I mean, I just, I, I thought this was an interesting dimension in American politics. And for the most part, political scientists aren't studying it. Political scientists are still still talking a lot about left-right political polarization. And this this establishment dimension is one where it could be that the elites of both parties are extremists, but extremists in the same direction. There, you know, I think it, it probably is true that George Bush and Hillary Clinton are both extremists in the pro-establishment direction, and, and Mitch McConnell is, and Nancy Pelosi is, and so forth. And most Americans are somewhere in the middle, and they're saying, I don't like that. And so it was savvy of politicians to come along, a small number of them, to say, you know, we're, we're missing out on some votes here. There are a bunch of people who, who don't like the establishment and I'm going to go after them and I'm going to moderate on that dimension a little bit. So that's an interesting development. And I, I think it's, it remains to be seen exactly how that's going to shake out. We see that if anything, the democratic party is becoming more pro-establishment over time. College degrees are becoming more correlated with voting for the democratic party that, you know, we could see that exacerbate over time. So what, what used to be kind of a second dimension could end up becoming kind of correlated with, with the main left, right dimension. So there are lots of interesting things to pay attention to. I disagree very strongly with all of the normative language in both the paper and in the discussion today in that it's not obvious to me whether like it's I, the, the pro-establishment people like that, that's a ridiculous position to have to just be like naively believe everything that you're told and think that the you know that's ridiculous the the super anti-establishment people are also probably a little bit ridiculous and the right answer is probably to be somewhere in the middle but lo and behold that's where most of the Americans are and so I, I come back to sort of like defending most Americans they're actually pretty sensible they're not idiots 
they're not easily bamboozled like the pro-establishment people are, but they're also not just crazy people, conspiracy theorists who don't believe anything like the, you know, there's some, most people are somewhere in the middle, but I think that's interesting because that's not where most of the politicians are. Most of the politicians would answer in the pro-establishment way. And most of the voters are somewhere in the middle. And so that's, that's an opportunity for politicians. And that's, I think the parties and the, and the candidates need to get their act together because they're going to continue losing votes. This kind of elitist position of just, those are dumb people who have the wrong ideas. We don't need to talk to them. They're wrong about that. And they should be trying to figure out how to win over those people in the middle if they want to win elections. That was a but I guess I'll call that my bottom line. So is the next paper you want to see a paper that shows the positive correlates within the American electorate uh, associated with the second dimension? Or is the next paper you want to see something about uh, elite position taking and elite uh, and how elites and the conditions under which elites tap into these um, latent attitudes or both? Yeah, both would be interesting, I think. I mean, I, I, mean I, I don't think researchers should be taking strong normative positions in their research. I don't think the research papers themselves should be like, hey, look, everybody, like, really, the right position is to be anti-establishment or pro-establishment. I think that's not the, that's not the role that researchers should play. But that's what you just did. I did it but on that, this Anthony, podcast. You yes. just yes, did. Yes, I did it on the podcast. I know. Yes. And they didn't do it in the paper. They didn't do it in the paper insofar as they just showed what the correlates were. They said, here are a set of things that you might be interested in. And what do you know? This correlates with that. Now, there might be other correlates as well that we could look at that would be more or less attractive. But the paper having shown empirically that these correlates leaves you worried. Yes. I mean, they, the paper takes a normative position that this is really troubling, that there are all these anti-establishment people out there. And first, I actually don't agree with that part. There aren't all these anti-establishment people out there. Most people are somewhere in the middle, which is kind of a reasonable place to be, if you ask me. And, and they, they also take this position that uh, they take this position that this is really bad for democracy. And I also, also don't think that's obviously true either. And so, yeah, so one could push back on that and say, is it obviously bad for democracy? I don't know. Here's a, here's a bunch of seemingly wrong opinions held by the anti-establishment people. Now I'm going to show you a bunch of seemingly wrong opinions held by the pro-establishment people. That, that would be a useful thing for somebody to do at some point. But I think I'm, I'm more interested in kind of the, the positive part of this, which is how is this going to affect our politics? Where are the candidates going to position themselves? How, how does this explain where we are in American politics and so forth? How does this interact with kind of left-right polarization? So I think there could be lots of interesting papers to be written on this topic. I mean, I just want to add something. Like, I'm completely with you, Anthony, that, you know, when they asked about what correlates with this kind of anti-establishment thinking, they looked at negative things. But I'm sure there are a lot of positive things that correlate with that, which is, for example, lack of conformity. That would be my first guess, that those people are less conforming. And we know, I mean, we know. I would guess that there are moments in our history where actually we want those people. You know, like in, again, going back to Poland, Poland has a lot of history of uh, peasants uprising because I think they they are less likely to be more pro establishment. And I think I think we want those people in our society. Now you're standing like an anti-establishment person. You're you're supporting peasant uprisings. And, I know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I mean, we're, we're I know we're we're past the bottom line now, but I also think another thing that this paper illuminates for me is that a lot of other pundits somehow conflate the left-right ideology dimension with anti-establishmentarianism, and I think it's useful to separate those in your mind. You'll see commentators calling like Joe Rogan far right, uh -huh. for example. Uh -huh. Like, and if you listen to Joe Rogan, I don't listen to Joe Rogan a lot. I don't know all of yeah. Joe Rogan is not Joe Rogan is left of center. Like, if you look, if you listen to his like, if you ask him what his views are on economic and social policy, 
he's pretty far left of center compared to the median voter in America. There's no, I can't imagine what could possibly make him far right. The thing that distinguishes him probably is he's kind of anti-establishment. He's the, no, I don't, I don't trust what, what, what Joe Biden and Anthony Fauci and the New York Times tell me. That doesn't make you far right. That just makes you kind of a little bit, he's higher on that anti-establishment scale. And I think that's interesting that people, right, that people conflate those things. They're like, oh, yeah. you know, Joe Rogan and Donald Trump both don't trust Anthony Fauci. Therefore, they're both far right is a huge mistake. Yeah. And so just just seeing politics on those two dimensions will help you make sense of things and, and avoid some of these some of these common mistakes that even, you know, even the kind of the professional pundits, I think, get wrong all the time. So this paper is done uh, for us, what we hope it will do for the discipline, which is to, I think, shake up our, our thinking and how we're talking about politics and where the opportunities lie for new coalitions to take forward, uh, to come forward, for parties to redefine themselves. So stay tuned. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodup. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.